Welcome to TKG's Healthcare Insights, where we explore healthcare's critical issues, challenges, and trends with a focus on achieving the quadruple aim of enhancing patient experience, improving population health, reducing costs, and improving the work life of healthcare providers and staff. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome. We're glad to have you listening today. I'm Warren Smedley, and today we will be taking a closer look at why so many of the value-based care initiatives have produced mediocre results. My co-host today is my colleague, Neil Pizer. Welcome, Neil. Thank you, Warren. This is a topic of great interest to me. I have been working for many years with health systems on their value-based care initiatives, like accountable care organizations, ACOs, bundled care initiatives, merit-based incentive payment system, or MIPS, direct contracting, and uh, other government and privately initiated value-focused programs. As we discussed many times, Warren, the extraordinary cost of healthcare in our country is not sustainable. And I think most of us have been looking for innovative ways to better align the incentives among all the key stakeholders. Oh, I agree, Neil. These are complex issues, and they seem to come up all the time in conversations with our customers. I thought it would be interesting to call on one of the Kinetics Group's business partners, Mark Miller, who's the president of Health Strategies, a firm that specializes in population health initiatives. Mark, thank you for being our special guest today. Good to be here. Thank you. Well, greetings, Mark. I'm looking forward to hearing your perspective on where we are with all these value-based shared risk contracting models. Regardless of the program in question, they're generally designed to achieve better value according to the so-called triple aim, which is improving the patient experience of care, and that includes quality and satisfaction, improving health of populations, and lowering per capita healthcare costs. With today's focus on ACOs in particular, including its various and continued iterations, it seems to me that the jury remains out regarding how well and under what conditions these models achieve the triple aim objectives. Mark, when we first met, which is a number of years ago, you were the CEO of Statera Health in Alabama. Feels like a lot has changed over the last five or so years. Would you give us a little bit of your background and then also perhaps a 50,000-foot view of the landscape of where we are with clinically integrated networks and these kinds of shared risk models? Sure, Warren. I'd be happy to. <clears throat> so after four years as the uh, CEO of Statera Network, I'm, I'm now the president and managing partner of Health Strategies. We're a population health advisory firm, and um, so we do uh, a lot of population health work on the ACOs and CINs. Neil, I enjoyed hearing a lot about your thoughts around improving the patient experience around the uh, the triple aim. So the 50,000 foot level, uh, from my perspective, um, we're all aware of coronavirus. It's had a uh, tremendous impact on healthcare in general. But, you know, assuming we get this pandemic behind us in 2021 and, you know, based on some of the recent announcements that uh, have been made this year uh, by the uh, commercial insurance as well as the federal government, um, I think the federal government and these insurance payers, they're going to continue to accelerate from what I'm hearing and researching and reading these value-based models, both in the accountable care organization and then separately the clinically integrated network. So uh, from my perspective, we're already at a point uh, with ACOs and CIN value-based models uh, where I think three primary models, at least from the uh, provider's perspective, Three primary models of opportunity for all the key stakeholders to coordinate and align and incentives together, as Neil said, to achieve this triple aim. 
uh, I, I believe are as follows. One is the clinically integrated network uh, is, as you know, the FTC, DOJ approved model of the CIN. Um, so under that model, the director employer agreements are becoming accelerated, very popular, especially in the shared savings uh, arena. And then also the uh, Medicare Advantage, the uh, commercial Medicare like Blue Cross, United, Humana, Cigna, Aetna, and uh, these types. So both of these uh, models, these two are predominantly under, as you know, the clinically integrated network. I do see these continue to accelerate. Now, as you know, the federal government, CMS, uh, has made a variety of announcements around their new MSSP programs, bundles, and uh, the other types of programs that uh, Neil mentioned earlier. And uh, I, ex- I see this accelerating under the ACO model as well. And so the, the stakeholders I'm referring to are health systems, physicians, post-acute facilities, insurance payers, and yes, pharmacies, pharmacy benefit managers, pharmaceutical companies and distributors and the like. So those are the three areas where I think uh, development has taken place and matured to the point where all these key stakeholders can get together, direct to employer, Medicare Advantage, and Medicare Standard. Mark, would you mind helping us understand the differences between a clinically integrated network and an ACO? How are these two models structured? Well, the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice uh, really considers these to be uh, very much the same. However, um, in order for them to approve the gain sharing with providers, um, insurance companies and providers, payers and providers, the agreements that are developed underneath these two models are really what the difference is, not necessarily the, the, the model itself. So as I mentioned before, whenever um, providers and uh, pharmacy organizations, health systems, whatever, are working together to try and help a health plan, an employer, a large self-insured employer, to bend that cost curve down and improve quality of care to their employees and beneficiaries, that would be under the clinically integrated network. And surprisingly, these commercial Medicare Advantage agreements uh, are also under the clinically integrated network model. Now, the accountable care model is uh, primarily um, the same type of model, but the agreements under that model, the collaborative agreements with the same stakeholders and parties would be more in the Medicare shared savings, the uh, bundles, and the other type of models that uh, Neil talked about earlier. Do these have significant differences in their outcomes? Are you seeing one model being more successful than another? I I think the the outcome differences are not because of any one of those three particular channels, but how the contracts are structured. In other words, there are, there are a variety of different types of contract structures that take place under each one of those three channels. For instance, uh, shared savings is a structure. Uh, straight payments for quality initiatives is another type of structure. And when it comes to shared savings, you can have an upside-only type of arrangement where the provider is not penalized if they don't achieve their objectives. Number two, you can have a shared downside risk where if there is increase in cost instead of reduced cost, if the cost curve is not bent down, but the costs go up, then the two parties, the payer and the provider share in that responsibility on the downside. And then of course, the full downside risk, for instance, in Medicare shared savings, pathways to success year three and beyond, it requires the provider to be fully Uh, at risk for that downside. So Mark, from the perspective of a healthcare organization, a provider organization, I should say, such as a health system, 
when they're evaluating the different types of models, what's some of the decisions that they need to make? And what are some of the success factors such that they can do well under one type of model versus another, number one? And number two, some of the models that you suggested or the arrangements don't necessarily require an organization to take on downside risk. It's merely a matter of maybe doing better uh, by um, gain sharing or sharing in the upside. Why would an organization want to take on, on downside risk? And if there's value in that to that organization, how could they be successful in that situation? Well, the risk and reward equation holds true here as it does in many types of uh, different relationships. So the downside risk is the type of model where the, the, uh, the, the upside potential is uh, sometimes exponentially higher as opposed to a, a collaboration where neither party is willing to take the full risk. So when you take the full downside risk model as a provider, the rewards are sometimes exponentially better than they are in just taking shared side or upside. Mark, in a conversation we were having just a few days ago, you mentioned several big mistakes that ACOs and clinically integrated networks are making that can hurt their performance. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I would like for you to revisit those ideas with us. I think they will be especially helpful for our listeners. Sounds great. You are listening to TKG's Healthcare Insights, a program produced by the Kinetics Group. TKG empowers life science companies to effectively engage with health system and payer customers by developing strategies and real-world solutions aimed at impacting the right patient at the right time with the right care. We also work directly with health systems and payers to address the critical issues of our time. We would love to hear from you. Reach out to us at thekineticsgroup.com. Thank you for joining us today. Okay, Mark, let's get back to that conversation that you and I were having just a few days ago where you were talking about several big mistakes or wrong assumptions that you have seen healthcare organizations make that can hurt their performance. Would you mind revisiting those comments with us? Sure, let's do it. So in my, in my opinion, from my experience, um, some of the mistakes are operational mistakes, but I'd say the number one and the biggest mistake would be something that Neil actually alluded to earlier, and that is the failure to align all of the key stakeholders' incentives together. Um, all these collaborative stakeholders need to buy into their particular role in the development or operation of a CRN or an ACO or really any value-based contract arrangements. I mean, imagine the collaboration that's required and the complexity required when we talked about earlier, the health systems, physician groups, insurance payers, pharmacies, post-acute, you know, employers, um, all of these folks have to play their role and play their part and truly be bought into it in order for everything to work well. So that's the number one mistake, I think, is not having collaboration and buy-in from all the key stakeholders. Secondly, um, it's been my surprise that a lot of the ambulatory and the uh, Q-care uh, and even the, um, the uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers all discount uh, the overutilization and the problems that happen with patients after the patient has already transitioned out of acute care into the post-acute environment. 
And uh, it's been my experience that 60% of all the unnecessary costs, both on the med surge side as well as the RX side, the drug side, is really attributed to the, the continuum of care that uh, stage where the, the patient has left the acute care environment and is now in the post-acute environment. Maybe they're in the wrong post-acute facility, an inpatient rehab, for instance, instead of skilled nursing facility. So they go from the hospital to inpatient rehab, then they go to skilled nursing, and guess what happens? They come back and unnecessary readmissions in the acute care environment happen because that transition didn't happen well and they weren't managed properly in the post-acute space. Thirdly, another big mistake that I've seen happen is the attempt for the investors of these ACOs and CINs to try to save money and create some type of module from the inpatient electronic medical record or even the the ambulatory uh, practice management software, trying to get someone to customize something that will produce the reports that prove that, in fact, the performance happened. A lot of people talk about pay for performance, and I always like to say there's no such thing as pay for performance. You get paid if you can prove your performance, but if you're performing and not proving, you're not going to get paid. Well, the information technology and the reports associated with that IT platform is what's going to prove uh, to the payer that the uh, the payments are due. And so information technology, the lack of a standalone population health, health information exchange data warehouse platform is uh, probably the third mistake that I see. So that's really interesting, Mark. So obviously having that information available and being able to track it is, is critical And then the question arises, who needs to have access to what information? Obviously, it needs to be shared holistically, but um, if if one is responsible, one entity is responsible for a certain point of care, then that point of care information needs to be available to that entity. So as an example, you talked a lot about this post-acute period. Is there a natural entity within this aligned organization that should have primary responsibility for the patient during that time frame, Or is it a matter of the contract and how you set up the contract? Well, the contracts um, are, are, are not, the contracts are more standard than actually the party who's responsible. What has to happen is a care management team and data analytics who actually fall under the CIN and the ACO. This is why the FTC and the DOJ will approve this. They need to be employed by the ACO and the CIN, who touches all of the various stakeholders throughout the entire continuum of care. So the answer is this separate care management and data analytics team uh, and, and, and the leadership of the need to be employed by this separate ACO or CIN that's approved by the FTC and the DOJ and CMS. Mark, it seems like the medical home model might be a concept that would help these programs to be more effective. Well, it's Similar to the uh, medical home, but obviously it's exponentially more complex uh, because you're actually responsible not for just coordinating all the stakeholders, but performing uh, and coordinating and facilitating on site with the patient, following the patient from from home to uh, PC to primary care, internal medicine to specialists you know, into the surgical environment and post-acute back home. Uh, the, the care man- the ACO team is to follow 
that organ, th- those patients, uh, that population, all the way through the entire continuum of care, which which makes it different. There's a, a lot of complexity with these patient populations, not only from obviously the medical perspective, but from the social and psychological perspective, particularly for these uh, patients who have lots of chronic illness. And there's been a lot of discussion lately about managing what the so-called social determinants of health. How does that play into all of this? Right. Well, um, there's leading edge and bleeding edge. And uh, from my perspective, it's it's healthy to be leading edge, but not bleeding edge. Artificial intelligence and social determinants are key factors and key future factors in helping to provide the necessary data in order for us to for predictive analytics and for us to prevent diseases in the future. But we have to be very, very careful that we don't let the tail wag the dog, that we uh, we, we go out on the bleeding edge on, on some of this technology. Look, at the, at the end of the day, what we need to do is determine where are the high-risk patients, where are the rising-risk patients, and where are the healthy patients. And I think a healthy amount of Social determinant variables that you add into, like a Rubik's cube, is extremely helpful. But then, when you get into artificial intelligence, I think there is some help there to uh, for data to be input in there as, as well as far as predictive analytics. But yeah, so it, it's a very complex uh, environment. Uh, but yet, if you can get all the stakeholders aligned, it works well. And the data that you get out of these social determinants is extremely important. Um, and some of the artificial intelligence is helpful as well. Mark, you are certainly highlighting how extremely complex healthcare is in general. Sounds like many of the things you were talking about here are related to things like poor care coordination and misaligned incentives within the stakeholder groups. We also know that there are a lot of individual inputs into the total cost equation that may, may play a role here. I think you mentioned the other day how just a few cases with high costs could impact overall performance. To what extent do you see the CIN or ACO leadership focusing on some of these more controllable individual inputs of costs, such as cost of drugs, the cost of implants, the cost of unnecessary surgeries, or maybe lengthy hospital stays? Well, this is where we get back to aligning the incentives of all the stakeholders, I mean, if, if we believe that uh, the ACO and the CIN is going to be able to take control of uh, the businesses or the decision-making of any one of the individual stakeholders, um, it, that, that, will be, that is a mistake as well. It's like pushing a boulder up a hill with a rope. It's not going to happen. The individual stakeholders and their own individual buy-in and aligning those incentives, as Neil said earlier, that is the key. The key is to make it a win for everyone, every one of the stakeholders who's involved, not trying to influence them to do something that they believe is not in their best interest. So to me, it's collaboration, it's facilitation, it's coordination, and it's aligning everyone's incentives together. And that that is complex, but I, I can tell you it has been done, it can be done. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, if you do it right with all the stakeholders, the quality of care for these patients goes up and the cost become more efficient. Mark, you've been talking a lot about the key stakeholders. It seems that traditionally, the primary stakeholders of these ACOs and clinically integrated networks have been providers and payers. Where are we with including other third parties, such as the device manufacturers, the pharmaceutical companies, the group purchasing organizations, and others 
who clearly have a vested interest in the performance of the ACOs and CINs, are they included in these models? They should be, and they are, and we are, and 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 these models are successful in proportion to opening up that window for the PBM pharmaceuticals distributors manufacturers. For instance, let me give you a, a, an example. Um, so um, we all know about HP Actar and uh, you know the costs that are associated with that. But uh, frankly, when you give the the, the the pharmaceuticals, the window that shows that even though an average injection, you know, is could be up to you know say forty thousand dollars an injection. Well, um, if you're properly using um, the HV Actar, you know, for for instance, you it it it's you certainly can't value um, you you can't necessarily value the life of someone who had a liver transplant and their liver might be rejecting that transplant. Well, HP Actar has been shown not only to improve rheumatic conditions in patients, which is the traditional use of it, but it can lead to acceptance or better acceptance of a liver transplant. And so communication is and and opening up the window into each other's world and cross-pollinating those learnings is really what's going to make it successful. So yes, that's an example of how you can bring in pharmaceuticals into a conversation on the provider side and everybody be able to uh, do what's right for the patient. So Mark, that that's really interesting and lots of value there. It seems to me that a lot of the innovations that are occurring in managing care of patients these days is within the realm of pharmaceuticals and new types of treatments. And obviously some of those cost quite a bit, some maybe not so much. But is there kind of any thinking about how a pharmaceutical company can work more directly with these provider-oriented ACOs or uh, CINs or even, uh, um, you know, like a, a Medicaid managed care program to be able to work in aligning what they think is going to be of great benefit and then getting that benefit to the patient population and then seeing the results. You mentioned data quite a bit. I mean, is there a way that there could be some data sharing to improve in that? Yes, not only data sharing, but relationship building. I mean, p- part of what an ACO and a CIN will do as the nucleus of all these different stakeholders is each individual stakeholder being able to come to the ACO and the CIN and ask that organization to partner with them in influencing the provider community, for instance, to do the right thing as as it, as it relates to you know uh, these types of drugs. So um, yes, a pharmaceutical wanting a pharmaceutical experiencing roadblocks, for instance, at the health system level or the physician provider level or the post-acute level, can partner with an ACO and a CIN and both of them together using the data from the pharmaceutical company to compel the provider community to do the right thing and to use the drugs that are recommended by the pharmaceuticals. So yes, there's, there's an in, there, there is a coordination uh, that uh, an accelerated coordination that takes place if the pharmaceuticals will work closely with the ACO-CIN leadership. That sounds like a terrific opportunity and one that's going to probably accelerate over time. Well, I think it has to, uh, given what's happened with the pandemic, given what is happening with the cost of healthcare, and we don't need to reintroduce, uh, you know, bending down the cost 
uh, of healthcare. But um, yeah, uh, these things are going to be accelerated and the need for disparate parties to communicate with each other using the ACO CIN as sort of that nucleus to communicate with, I think um, I think that is going to accelerate. Gentlemen, this has been a great discussion, but we are coming up on the end of our time together. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate you sharing your expertise and helping us unpack the complexities of improving performance in these kinds of value-based contracting programs. You've been such a great friend and colleague over the years that we've been able to work together, and I'm I'm sure that the government's not about to stop trying new and different innovative risk-sharing arrangements. So we should be continuing to innovate in this area. I think your expertise will continue to be highly sought after. Well, thanks for inviting me, Warren and Neil. I'm uh, happy to do it. Thank you, Mark. Special thanks to you both. That wraps up another week of TKG's Healthcare Insights. Thank you for joining us. We welcome your suggestions, ideas, and requests for podcast topics of interest. Please reach out to us at thekineticsgroup.com forward slash contact and write Insights Podcast in the subject line. Thank you. Have a safe and healthy day.